Well, hello, ladies and gents, Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and I hope you're having a wonderful day. Today, I've got special guest John Arbuckle on the line. He is a ninth-generation pig farmer. He knows all about regenerative agriculture. We dive into that topic because I've had continual interest in that topic because Crystal and I are trying to have our own little little homestead with some pigs and some cows and some chickens. So this guy knows all about it. He's been doing this for generations and generations. He knows all about how to offer a quality of life for the pig, how to you know sustainably and regeneratively source that as a natural renewable resource so that the pig's happy, we're happy, we're healthy, and all is well. So I learned a ton. I've got no doubt that you will as well. Without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast with John Arbuckle. We are live. John, how are you, sir? I am excellent. How are you, Robert? I am doing wonderfully well. I'm super excited to get you on because you are the brains behind regenerative agriculture. That's that's a topic that a lot of people are hearing tossed around, especially in the keto, low-carb, carnivore space. Um, and I've... I've personally been drawn to it because crystal my wife and i are trying to eventually get our own little homestead and be very sustainable in that structure um so i'm really excited to just dive in as to to what all regenerative agriculture is what it entails and then get some personal backstory on your end like what got you into this in the first place yeah sure so if um if i could just say just in a nutshell um all food production in the world um all terrestrial food production is going to be based on the model of it's either getting worse, which is degenerative, it's staying the same, which is what sustainable is. Sustainable just kind of means status quo, or the soil quality is regenerating. And uh, just to bring that particular vocabulary word into the game um, is enlightening, you know, Mm -hmm. because most people, when we think of the word sustainable, it's just kind of where we're continuing a model that we think is working satisfactorily well. And uh, in the food production systems that I'm familiar with, very few of them are actually working in a way that everybody is satisfied with them. We don't actually wanna sustain our food production systems. We really want to regenerate them. We want systems that get better with time. And uh, and that's part of my excitement for pursuing it. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I feel like this is such a, a dicey topic in so many circles because you know, where you source your food has become a, a very ethical question, which it should, um, but there's just so much misinformation about, you know, how to uh, h- how to get an animal-based diet, which is obviously the majority of the people following a keto or carnivore diet um, are animal-based. Um, so to, to be able to not just sustainably source that, but to do so in a regenerative means is, is, is gaining a lot of attention, a lot of momentum, which I'm super excited about. So can you kind of, I guess before we dive into to regenerative agriculture, can you just kind of paint a picture as to what the current status quo is with regard to, you know, big factory feed farms and how that is structured and why it's not necessarily optimal? Yeah, absolutely. So um, no matter where your meat is coming from, um, it really, really, in my opinion, you get a lot of benefit of if your animal stood on green grassy pastures then you as a human being are gonna get a whole lot of benefit from that. So right now, um, I am a little bit more knowledgeable in the world of pork production. I'm a pig farmer myself. And um, what I can say is that in America, we measure as a nation, we measure our pork production in the billions of pounds. (laughs) That's a lot (laughs) of pig. (laughs) Yes, there's an oceanic number. I've heard somewhere in the state of Iowa, pigs outnumber people 12 to 1. There are uh, pig factory farms being built in China right now that are going to, they're, they're so gigantic in scale, they're hard to imagine. They're supposedly going to be creating 2.2 million pigs per year per facility. And that can be as much as 2% of the American pig production per year. And that's just per facility. Um, so, you know, when I, when I look at these factory farms, um, I like to, as one other farmer I heard, he kind of jokingly said, that something that factory farming in America has really done admirably well, admirably well, is hitting the bullseye on the wrong target. <laughs> mm. uh, 
which I love that way of thinking. If uh, if efficiency and uh, if efficiency was the most important thing, then factory farming would be the answer. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, factory farming is going to be outsourcing uh, so many external costs. You know, human health. You know, you're you're not paying your farmer the bill. You're paying your doctor. You know, when your health suffers. Um, when uh, hmm, when the hurricanes came through North Carolina last time and all of the pig factory farm waste lagoons overflowed, a lot of that waste went straight into the rivers and then directly into the ocean, uh, which was a cost that, that somebody had to bear. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, uh, there's so many externalized costs that come along with factory farming that um, are very dangerous and just that people should know about. I think before we dive even deeper, I'd like to kind of tackle the topic of looking at, you know, livestock, pigs, um, you know, beef, any of that, chickens, any of that as a renewable resource. Because I feel like, you know, framing the conversation around animals being a renewable resource, you know, unless unless that is really well understood what that even means, it's oftentimes met with, you know, ruffled feathers because that sounds kind of like you're just – uh, you know, p- placing a number on an animal. Um, yeah. But when you look at, I mean, I, I, I've got my own take on this for sure, but I'd love for for you to just kind of express your thoughts towards viewing animals as a renewable resource in the first place. Oh, well, absolutely. So um, the the tradition that I kind of look at for inspiration uh, was the Lakota Sioux people. Mm-hmm. And the Lakota Sioux, um, for them, the buffalo was the most sacred thing in the entire universe that was their you know if i understand it correctly it seems to have been their religious symbol the buffalo mm-hmm. and it was it was sacred to them it was uh, such a special and integral part of their lives because they used every part of it and everything that they were going to touch in the course of a day had once been some piece of a buffalo <laughs> right whether it was the bowstring on their bow having come from the shoulder tendon of the buffalo or the tools that they used for sewing or, you know, their, um, their housing, their structure, their shelters, their clothing. So much of what they touched in the course of a day had at some point in time been part of a buffalo. Mm-hmm. And to take that one step more profound, their bodies were built out of the cells that had once been cells in a buffalo. You know, I don't know how quickly our bodies are replacing um, our muscle cells and our skin cells, but I think we're going through cells pretty quickly and we're replacing those cells with what we eat. So we're quite literally building our bodies out of what we are consuming. So not only were the Lakota Sioux people, were they touching objects that had once been buffalo, uh, but their bodies were, were built in part out of buffalo. And because they had such a connection to the animal, they were built out of buffalo cells. Their houses were built out of buffalo parts and tools. Because of all that, the animal was very sacred to them. And they killed them in mass, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that sums up a lot of my feelings related to pork production, you know, I, I really enjoy raising pigs. I am the ninth generation of my family. Uh, my children are the 10th generation of the Arbuckle family to raise pigs in America. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of what we consume, a lot of what I have built my body out of is pork. Uh, and to me, the pig is a, is a beautiful and, and sacred animal and one that's worthy of great respect in life. And at the end of its life, uh, you know, we're going to end that very quickly and humanely. And then with artisanal processes, we're going to create food that's going to nourish other people. And I really enjoy being part of that circle of life. Yeah, that, that you know, circle of life to me, it, it just seems so, uh, so obvious, so, so beautiful in an innately just natural process. It's such an organic, natural process. Of course, you know, You've come from a family of, of generations of, of pig farmers. I've come from a family of generations of, you know, scientists, biologists, and, and, you know, I've hunted my entire life, and I was raised hunting. I was hunting before I could really walk. And I feel like, you know, having the upbringing that we have, we we garnish this respect towards animals. It's not like we're just driving around shooting things, letting them lay, which I feel like a lot of people think is what's happening whenever an animal is killed. I feel like the people, like the hunters, 
um, and the farmers and the ranchers that have been raised using this 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 animal as a renewable resource they have so much more innate respect for the animal and they use every ounce of that animal in the most efficient way and effective way they know how and with that comes this this underlying appreciation for life itself and i feel like you know i, I don't want to ever try to assume that i know the ethical stance of you know a vegan or a vegetarian that just is so against the the farming practices and the hunting practices but when you look at the the lens like you've described as a circle of life it just seems like that that i mean that's how we've always done it. that's how we've evolved to live and survive and thrive and i feel like anything counter to that is just unrealistic in the first place yeah i think I, I agree and um you know i guess i back that up with um before i was a livestock farmer um i was an organic vegetable producer mm -hmm. and um since i want to be responsible for as few deaths as possible that's kind of part of the reason why I quit being an organic vegetable producer is I was responsible for killing more creatures when I was a vegetable producer and I was running my, my rototiller through great big fields and, you know, who knows how many ground nesting birds and snakes and voles and mice and, you know, insects and depending on how small we want to go with life, you know, we were, we were very, um, you know, we were damaging to life in that way. And now, you know, uh, we raise pigs until they're very large. We just take a single life for each pig, of course, and then we get this huge amount of food from that. Um, the, the seafood industry has a term that they call the bycatch. And the bycatch is whatever non-target species accidentally got killed along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I was an organic vegetable farmer, I was just noticing that my bycatch was higher than it is now. You know, right now it's very, very rare for a non-target species to be harvested. Uh, and our numbers are very, very small. You know, we're gonna be harvesting 600 pigs a year. And that's coming from about 35 sows. So this is a little bit more to your point about it being a renewable resource. Um, we have the same 35 sows that we've had for the last, you know, three or four years. And um, every year we ha they have babies in the springtime and the fall, March 7th and September 7th. And uh, we get about 300 each time. Uh, and then um, that happens every year, twice a year. And they just, they just keep doing it, you know? So in terms of something being a renewable resource, um, it's a really beautiful sight to see because in the fall, we run the entire herd, we do a roundup, we catch them all, we run them all up onto this big rocky hill that's covered with oak trees. And uh, we put up a small single strand electric fence all around it. We bring them their water, we bring them some uh, non-genetically modified whole grains. And we call it birthday hill because you know every fall there's gonna be about 300 uh, pigs born on that hill and each mama pig just goes off and the grass is really tall and she finds a nice spot in the shade of an oak tree and she builds herself a great big nest. And, um, and that's where the baby pigs are born. And this is such a giant contrast to factory farming where the sows are kept in small metal boxes that are so, so tight that they can't even turn around. Mm -hmm. And uh, they spend a fair percentage of their life in containers like that. It's, it's very uh, frustrating for me to see that the animal's uh, comfort is not thought of at all, um, especially when I can go out and walk around and see the pigs enjoying being in the shade and picking spots to build their nests, just, almost like they were wild animals. Yeah, uh, I, think, uh, I think so many vegans and vegetarians, for instance, feel so convicted to pursue a life without any meat because they they see the imagery they see the, the video clips of these factory farms and these animals having zero space zero quality of life and any respectable person would also agree that that's just not optimal i mean you and i are on the same page there it didn't have to be that way so what you're describing here i mean if i was a pig that sounds like i'd be a pretty happy pig you know i mean you get grass you get pastures you get the sunshine what else you need yeah absolutely i like to I like to joke that if through some trick of science fiction, it was possible for me to be reincarnated as one of my pigs, I would accept that deal. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's talk about let's talk about the numbers here, because I feel like a lot of people, you know, are under the false assumption that if, if we just let the pigs do their thing and we didn't ever touch them, all would be better. 
But pigs, I mean, they, they reproduce at a crazy rapid rate. I mean, we have a ton of wild hogs on our farm. And, like, if we don't manage those populations, it's much, much worse for them than if we were to manage them. So viewing them through the lens of a natural resource in that regard honestly improves their quality of life on the macro level. Absolutely. Uh, the same is true of all predator-prey relationships. If we remove the predator from an ecosystem, what immediately happens is the prey species get out of balance, they overpopulate, uh, disease and starvation are both sweep through the herd, and uh, an enormous amount of suffering is created, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, which, um, which is much, much greater than if, um, you know, if a predator of whatever variety patrols the edges of wherever the grazing animals are and then picks off the older ones or the diseased ones before they can serve as a vector for getting that disease deeper into the herd. Um, you know, what the, what the uh, people up north say is they say the wolf is the caribou's best friend because that, the wolf, is by far the best system of checks and balances for creating a high quality of living for the healthy animals. Totally agree. And in the context of, you know, humans using these animals as natural resources, humans being the primary predator, you know, one of your pigs that that dies at your hand is going to have a much more, a much less painful death than any that that die out in the wild due to natural predators. Yeah, it's true. And Michael Pollan references that in uh, his book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. He's got a great section in there on the ethics of eating meat and the ethics of hunting. And he, he references that quite commonly. It's very interesting stuff. Very interesting. I feel like anybody that actually digs into this, like you can't help but but just become aware of the facts of what's at play here. And when you know the facts, I mean, the taking it to a regenerative agriculture standpoint and improving the quality of the soil, improving the lifespan and health span of the, the animals themselves, and then therefore being able to have a, a better byproduct for humans to consume, it just, it like is the only reasonable answer. I feel like people's i'm kind of jumping around here a little bit but i think oftentimes people's big uh you know frustration with regenerative agriculture is they question as to whether or not it's scalable uh on a mass level because like hunting for instance it wouldn't be scalable if every human that ate meat became a hunter that would not be a scalable approach because there's just so many people on the planet but from a regenerative regenerative agriculture standpoint is that a scalable practice it's a hundred percent scalable and uh, the, the model that we work from is I like to say that we're farming in nature's image, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so since we're farming in nature's image, what template do we have to follow? And what we see, you know, in, in attempting to, you know, the, the practice is called biomimicry. How do I make my farm as most like nature as possible? And every grassland ecosystem on earth co-evolved with a large grazing herbivore. Um, In North America, particularly the plains, that large grazing herbivore was the bison. And it's estimated that there was between 30 and 50 million bison um, at the time that uh, the Spanish arrived. Mm -hmm. So to me, um, that is a lot of animals. (laughs) And, uh, And that's just the bison. That's not to say anything about deer and elk and moose and antelope and you know the 101 other creatures that um, that we could be counting as a large herbivore uh, so at this point in time uh, we have a lot more domestic animals and we have wild animals and I think um, that wild animals would be to be preferred but in reality um, you know I live in coastal Maine and there are no bison here right now. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know how to fence them, even if there were here. So um, in, in my world, you know, we can get uh, pigs or cows or chickens. Uh, we do the same thing that happened in nature. We get a large group of animals. We keep them tightly bunched and continuously moving. And it's just like if you've ever seen a picture of the African Serengeti, where you have you know, a hundred thousand wildebeest in a single herd, and they're just always moving. You know, the ground is their buffet. They're walking across the grassland, you know, eating grass, depositing manure around the perimeter is going to be some kind of large predator. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of different varieties of large predators there. And it just wasn't any different in any other ecosystem, whether it was the caribou up north or it was the bison and timber wolves here in America. 
Um, and we just tried to mimic that. And it turns out that uh, the soil, when you manage animals that way, the soil just takes in this enormous breath of relief. It's just like, thank God I'm getting what I was designed for. I'm getting what I evolved for. Um, and then I would take that one step farther. The animals are happier that way. The ground is totally happier being managed that way. And then, you know, guess what happens at the end of all that? The nutrient density of the meat is fantastic. Uh, so the people who are eating that meat are going to suffer from less inflammation. The meat's going to be more nutrient dense. It's going to have a better omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. It's going to have way more vitamins A, D, E, and K, the fat-soluble vitamins. Mm -hmm. And that's all going to contribute to our health. So, um, you know, you always you know, hear the kind of old cliche line, you know, when you do something good for the earth, the earth does something good for you. Well, we've actually got scientific proof of that in that last statement that I made. When we re regeneratively graze livestock, the meat they produce is so much better for us. I totally, totally agree. I mean, if you look at, and you're going to correct me if I'm wrong here because you know a lot better than me, but if you look at the current beef industry, for instance, is is it not true that the vast majority of any of those cows' lifespan is spent on, you know, grassland grazing like they should? That's like 80 or 85, 90% of their life spent there, and then just shuttled to a factory feedlot for that last 10% to be grain-finished, slaughtered, and, and, and moved on. If you look at, and I think that's largely due in process to there being just kind of a monopoly on a few large-scale farming operations, um, but with I'm assuming it's pretty similar with the pig industry as well, right? The pig industry is a little bit more centralized than the cattle industry. Um, but yes, what you said about cattle is, is largely correct. I think that the percentage of their life they spend in a feedlot is a little bit higher. You know, I think it might be more like 25% or maybe 30 sometimes, but, mm -hmm. um, essentially what's happening is, uh, the industry has decided for cattle production that the cattle is healthiest being born, uh, mostly on cool season grasses. And then the cow, the cow calf pair grows, you know, the calf grows. And uh, at the last, shall we say, between 90 and 120 days of its life, uh, it's taken to, uh, to a stockyard. And during that time, it eats a huge quantity of corn. And, and its, its uh, digestive system is not meant to be taking in such a high-carbohydrate feed source. It's meant to be taking in a higher-protein, green, lush grass with a lot of fiber in it that's how the cow's digestive system is is built mm -hmm. so when we alter that when we start giving the cows this tremendously high carb diet um it's just uh it's a lot for their liver and kidneys to process uh, the liver and kidneys actually end up getting damaged uh, along the way and that's what necessitates the need for such large quantities of antibiotics to be given to the cows while in feedlots uh, it's just because their in their internal organs are starting to break down, literally break down. And uh, in that setting, it requires antibiotics to keep them alive. So uh, from like a the other thing that happens in the feed, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I didn't mean to cut you off. There. I was just to, so from a scalability standpoint, we've already got the 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 grasslands capable of of withstanding the amount of you know cattle that we currently have in production. So if we were just to you know mitigate that last 20, 25% of their lifespan being fed, you know, at these stockyards, then, I mean, it's, it's not like we don't have the land uh, capable of, you know, raising and sustaining the, the current cattle production that we have to feed the population that we do. We just need to change the yeah, way we finish that last 20, 25%. Absolutely. If we can get more cows to finish on pasture, um, so many good things would happen. And in many cases, it would require... Uh, the farmer learning a new skill set because, uh, and I think that this is still worth doing, but just to note the small complication is uh, finishing a cow is a different process than um, just raising a cow. You know, mm. there's a, a little bit more science, a little bit more rate of gain, you know, a little bit more making sure the animal has high quality feed stuff. You know, if we, if we want to compete with a feedlot, then the forages that we're offering the cow, the grasses and clovers and forbs that the cow is eating, 
uh, need to in a almost compete with the calorie content of the grain that they would be getting. Gotcha. Uh, and that is easier said than done, but it's also still totally possible. And I'm assuming, uh, from a from a, a business standpoint, a lot of these ranchers are, you know, selling their livestock off during the last 20, 25 percent of their lifespan to these stockyards because it's it's kind of like a they, th- those large companies have the monopoly and they're they have the ability to process that meat and then distribute it to the, fi- the final consumer. Whereas those small ranchers, they don't have the the branding, they don't have the the you know market so to speak where they could offer direct to consumer so pretty much from their standpoint they they know what no other option than to sell it off for that final phase yeah and if a farmer decides that they're going to uh give themselves the education of learning how to finish a cow appropriately and then how to finish them consistently so that they have a supply finishing every month consistent with their market demand and then the last piece of that chain is a farmer learning how to do the marketing uh, necessary to find those customers and distribute their product to them. So basically, most farmers, and I really believe that the way to increase our greater number of farmers is to have more medium scale supply chains where mm-hmm. we can um, just have more supply chains out there, you know, because um, it's a lot of hats for an individual farmer to wear. You know, that's a that's a lot of skill sets and where the giant corporations have an advantage is um, they are able to hire people who are experts in all of those fields. Um, Now, that's not to say that that's a bad idea because, you know, we do that ourselves. But um, if we had more medium scale supply chains so that a farmer could really stay in their lane and do what they're good at, and that might be you know, doing a cow-calf pair operation where the mother cow gives birth to a baby cow and then they finish that animal and then they can sell that somehow. Then I think the farmer does a little bit better or they find their sweet spot on the income versus labor and skill set uh, chart, if you will. Gotcha, gotcha. You you mentioned there's some differences between the, the cattle industry and, and the, the pig industry. Is that concept pretty similar in that most of these pig farmers are selling off during the late, later phases because they simply don't have the infrastructure or the wherewithal to finish and distribute? Yeah, it's mostly on the um, finishing a pig because, you know, while we do raise our pigs on green grassy pastures, uh, the pig has a different digestive system as a cow. The cow has a four-chambered stomach, you know, the first of which is called the rumen, mm-hmm. and that allows it to break down the fiber in grasses and extract carbohydrates. So a pig doesn't have that. So a pig can eat grass and it can develop all of those positive qualities that come along with eating grass. But at the same time, you know, we still offer our pigs non-genetically modified grain just because that's kind of what they're asking for. You know, a pig that's not getting any grain at all would be a pretty unhappy pig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So with that said, that's kind of a long-winded way of saying that finishing a pig is easier than finishing a cow. So for most pig producers, the lacking steps are knowing how to market and distribute that product in the end. Gotcha, gotcha, that um, makes sense. And I also would say that uh, the pork industry is more concentrated also because of that. The pig is able to eat grain, which means that the really large corporations can make pig production cease to be a land-based venture and do the whole thing under a roof so the animal never sees, you know, true daylight. And and that's what a true factory farm is. So pigs uh, actually lend themselves to factory farming a little bit better than cows, uh, which is somewhat of a small tragedy. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate for sure. I feel like kind of going back to what you said about the, you know, the monogastric versus the, the multi-stomach, the the, the the cattle, for instance, are able to upregulate the nutritional quality. So, you know, grass-fed is going to be better than grain-fed. But as the end consumer, the human consuming the, the cattle, you know, you're not going to have near as much of a disparity between a grass-fed versus grass-finished cow as you are with a pig that is, you know, fed a quality, nutrient-rich diet versus one that is not. Because you're basically, the when the pig eats, whatever the pig eats, the pig is much more likely to become a you know semblance of than where it is with a, a cow you're going to have that upregulation in nutrient density does that make sense 
Um, I, I got lost there a little bit. Can you say it again? So like with the pig, for instance, having the, the single stomach, it's it's kind of like what you eat is, you are what you eat is more so the case with regard to a pig than it is with a cow. So a lot of people that are getting their, their pork um, from these factory feedlots are, are going to be therefore consuming a much lower grade quality of, of meat um, than you would in a similar context of a, of a cow, for instance, because that upregulation process does not take effect to the same degree that it does in the cattle industry. Um, yeah. So like for, for you, for instance, feeding the pig, I mean, what, what's a typical diet look like for all the, the pork that you have? So uh, we have a really sweet deal with a local beer factory. Um, and while we live kind of out in the middle of nowhere in coastal Maine, there is a craft brew, brew plant uh, less, than, less than a mile away. Nice. And I pull up these uh, trailers. I have several trailers. And twice a day, they put 900 pounds of barley in my trailers. And then I bring those back, and it's super warm, and it's moist, and it's kind of like fragrant oatmeal. And the pigs totally love it, especially now that it's wintertime and it's cold out. So uh, they get a lot of what's called spent barley. Uh, We also live close to a, a cheese house. And the cheese house gives us all of their uh, whey and uh, and cheese scraps nice. um, and they just love that so that particular combination and I'm really looking forward to seeing this in action in the summertime um, but uh, you know that spent barley combined with cheese and then all the grass and clover they can eat um, that to me is a is a fantastic diet for a pig and one that helps them to grow happily and feel comfortable and I should say we always have a grain bin full of non-GMO whole grains for just in case there's a snowstorm, you know, or we can't get, you know, our cheese or we can't get our, our you know, uh, barley, barley waste. Um, so we've always got that on hand, too. And contrast that with what a typical, you know, factory farmed uh, pork, pork farm is, is, is feeding their pig supply. It's, it's like not even in the same ballpark. No, not at all. It's going to be entirely... They're going to be eating entirely genetically modified grain. And in many facilities, um, they have it's fed as a wet mash. So the animal actually cannot drink without eating. Um, <clears throat> and there are two kinds of synthetic adrenaline, which are added to the pig feed, that um, just makes the pig so amped up and antsy that it just it wants to be active. It's, it's wanting to be active in a really big way. And the only activity that it can take part in is actually eating more. Um, and what I'm describing right now is that it's called a beta antagonist called ractopamine. And that uh, particular chemical is banned in 160 countries, including Russia and China. Um, and America is one of the few uh, first world countries that has not banned ractopamine in pork production. And, and why is that just simply from a, an output quantity standpoint? They're, they're, they're able to output more using it, and they, they don't want to affect their bottom line? Well, there, there's two reasons. One is that um, they really are just trying harder and harder to hit the bullseye on the wrong target, you know, because they're not actually going for human health or animal happiness or environmental stewardship. It's really entirely about yield. Uh, the second piece that is driving that is that, and this, I'm sure that you'll have strong feelings about this, but, you know, back in the day, I don't know when they came up with the diet plan called the lipid hypothesis that mm-hmm. said that fat was responsible for heart attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they decided that, people decided, well, gosh, we should really limit our animal fat consumption. And, uh, and pork is by nature somewhat fatty. So what they did on the factory farms was they, um, they bred their animals to be very lean, and then they started giving them more and more ractopamine. And part of the purpose of keeping them so amped up is they, um, they produce more lean meat. Um, gotcha. So they're trying to get people to eat less and less fat. Uh, and this has so many kind of side effects on human society. You know, I mean, the the first of which is that I think that and I don't know if this is a radical thought or not, but I don't think that it's possible to eat too much 
animal fat. Um, I eat an awfully lot of it <laughs> myself. I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah, um, and I enjoy it. Uh, it helps me on so many ways, so many levels. Um, I'm not the least of which being is that you know when I have by some uh, freak chance when I have a very high glycemic index diet. I find my blood sugar is just bouncing off the walls. It's going up and down and up and down, you know, depending on, you know, what I'm eating. And as a result, my mood kind of bounces up and down too. Mm -hmm, and man, when I'm, when I'm eating a high fat diet and I'm eating, you know, good fat pig, pig meat that I know I've raised myself, I just feel like my, my blood sugar is steady as she goes, you know, right down the middle of the road, takes a lot to make my blood sugar change. And as a result, my mood is kind of steady as she goes too. I feel much more resilient as a person. So um, I really yeah. encourage, I encourage the consumption of uh, healthy pork fat all the time. <laughs> yeah, you completely agree. You can't go wrong with quality bacon that you've, especially that you've raised yourself. I mean, it doesn't really get any better than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about just the, the act of, you know, regenerative agriculture in the first place like a lot of people it, it's tied in with with more than just one animal like you were saying i mean the way kind of, kind of explain the the cycling approach of letting them graze on one plot of land and then you're kind of basically cycling you know whether it's chickens there at one point and then then the the pigs come through then the cattle come through like how is that whole cyclical nature organized okay so um i'll tell you uh, are the specifics of what we do on our farm and then I'll give you something that I call the five principles. And this comes from an organization called Soil Health Academy. A really great regenerative farmer named Gabe Brown, I believe, came up with some of this stuff. So uh, on our farm, um, we're going to take uh, a herd of grass-fed uh, cattle through first. Mm -hmm. And quite commonly, the herd of cows that we're going to run is replacement dairy cows. So they're young heifers that have never been bred, never been milked. And uh, they're going to go through. And they're, you know, like a microscope has like a coarse adjustment and a fine adjustment. When the cows go through, that's the coarse adjustment. They're going to skim all of the, the larger forages off the top. And then the pigs and the chickens come through. And that is, um, that's more like the fine adjustment. Uh, and then what we're going to try to do is every 30 days, the animals are going to regraze that same area. So <clears throat> really, the way to regenerate soil is you let the grass grow until it's maybe in our ecosystem with our grasses, we let them get, you know, just over knee high. Mm -hmm. And then the, we do what's a pretty intense grazing event. We really graze it down. And then 30 days later, the grass will have rebounded and is going to be you know, the same height again. And we keep doing that for about five months, six months out of the year. And then on the shoulder seasons, spring and fall, it slows down a lot more, right? Mm -hmm. So if we can get, let's say, eight rotations around our farm in a nine-month cycle, we're super excited about that. And when, when someone manages a farm in that way, the tight bunched continuously moving we're using a, a movable electric fence to keep them keep them where we want them to be when someone manages their land that way i can 100 percent guarantee that your entire ecosystem function is going to improve dramatically and it's not going to take a hundred years to make it happen for example we've been on the farm where we're on right now um you know, we, we moved here recently. You know, this is going to be our fourth summer coming up. And uh, in that span of time, we've used regenerative practices. And we are seeing so much wildlife. Last summer, we had um, a local bird watching team come. And they told us that we had one of the highest uh, populations of grassland birds, you know, the savannah sparrow and the bobolink, mm -hmm. in the entire state of Maine. Uh, and that wasn't like that when we got here. So that was kind of an unexpected, that's like what they call an Easter egg, you know, it's like an unexpected surprise. Also last summer, we saw fantastic numbers of uh, muskrat and otters. Very cool. Um, yeah, it's super, it's super cool. You know, that's why we call our farm 
you know, singing pastors is because it's just, it's an intact ecosystem. It's, it's alive, you know, everything in the summertime is singing, whether it's coyotes or bobcats or great horned owls or bullfrogs, you know, or the spring peeper frogs or, you know, there's just so much life just right outside the window that it really feels like the pastors are singing. I think looking at it through the lens of like a conservationist, you know, in that regard is, is just so, so empowering because you, you can know, I mean, you can go to sleep at night knowing with absolute certainty that you're improving, you're, you're a good steward of the land. And when you leave, I mean, nobody owns any land. Like when you stop and think about it, like we are stewards of the land during our time here on earth. And if yeah. you leave that parcel of land better than you found it, you know, that, that that's something to take pride in right there. Absolutely. And, you know, I can... 100% guarantee that all of the all of the statistics that measure, you know, the metrics for measuring ecosystem function, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a quantity of grass produced or quantity of animals you can graze or quantity of predator or prey animals, I really like both, you know, that you've got or the quickness that the water infiltrates into the ground or how you can have zero runoff, you know, zero nutrients leaving your farm, every single vital statistic of ecosystem function is going to improve dramatically and it's going to improve dramatically quickly. Totally agree. So I've got a selfish question for you. Are you ready? Yeah. Lay it on me. I have just purchased about just over five acres, 5.2 acres in which about two and a half or three acres is, you know, field and pasture land. And Crystal and I, I mean, Crystal used to uh, have pigs when she was a kid and she's always wanted pigs. I want pigs. I want to be able to, you know, have a head or two of cows, some pigs, some chickens, and just be, become totally self-sufficient in our own production. That on top of, you know, the hunting that I do, you know, leave the place a better better piece of land than I found it, but then be able to fill our freezers with all of our own meat. You yeah. know, it, you don't have a lot of context because you don't know what the irrigation is like. There's a lot of, lot of question marks here. But just based off of that, what would be kind of like your gut instinct go-to as far as like, okay, you know, two or three head of cattle, you know, five pigs, 12 chickens, like what, what kind of immediately just comes up in your mind is how to structure that. I could probably help you create, um, a management system for all of, for all of that. It'd take a longer conversation. I would say that if you don't mind buying a little bit of uh, hay, you know, mm-hmm. for the cattle, and if you don't mind buying, um, some, you know, good non GMO grain for the pigs and the chickens, mm-hmm. you can, you can totally set up a really fantastic system and it doesn't have to be rocket science. You know, it, it doesn't have to be, um, super complicated, you know, like for example, if we just imagine that, um, you, you know, want to separate the cows, you know, if you want the cows to be grass based, you'll have to separate them from the pigs and the chickens, but you could simply have something like the cows go first and then the pigs and the chickens, you know, go second. And so long as you're moving them, I mean, the more often you move them, the better, but, uh, if, if someone's primary job in life is not being a farmer, then sometimes just moving the electric fences once every three days, you know, is plenty good. And like how so much think, space uh, is in there? Like, for instance, like how, how big a space do you leave them in, uh, you know, for that three day span before you move them to the next space? Like, is that just like an acre or how is that kind of laid out? No. Um, so what I, what I recommend and without, without actually knowing the space and, and a lot of the specifics, it'd be hard to say, but what I would say is, um, watch the animals because, you know, what farming is, is it's, it's more like, more like dialogue, you know, with the land and the animals and the earth and then your own labor, you know, uh, issues or, you know, however much labor you're willing to put into it. Mm-hmm. So if, um, if you put the animals out there and then you, you watch them and you see that they've eaten all the cows have eaten all the grass in the run and it took them three hours to do it, then you're like, Oh golly, <laughs> you know? Uh, let's rotate them right now and let's give them, you know, 300% that amount of space. Um, and then you you can kind of, uh, with trial and error and having a little bit of hay handy also kind of takes the edge off of the labor element, but, um, through trial and error, you'll figure out, you know, during this time of year, this many cows is going to need this space and it's going to change a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, because, um, 
you know, in, in my area, if, uh, if we get a, a fall drought, you know, the dryness combined with the lower temperatures combined with the uh, reduced quantity of sunlight because there's less, less daylight, all of that is going to contribute to less forage production. Gotcha. Uh, so there'll be a little bit of context. So I guess my answer is it depends, mm-hmm. but, um, I also don't mean that, uh, to make that really complicated. My, my personal philosophy is more like, uh, like ready, fire, aim, just go do it <laughs> and, uh, and see what happens. And, you know, you'll, you'll crash and burn a couple of times and the cows will all get out and you and your neighbors will chase them back. And <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, that there's no other way, you know, you know, the, the hardest, the hardest animal to purchase is going to be your very first one. Yeah, totally. But, uh, just, just go do it. And if you don't like it, don't do it again. <laughs> no, no, it'll be good. I'm, I'm super excited about it. Like my, my folks, we've always had lambs there. So we've always, you know, had lambs, horses and whatnot. Um, and, and lambs are pretty easy keepers. I mean, they, we, we eat a lot of lamb. They're super easy to maintain. Um, mm. I would imagine pigs are pretty similar and pigs have a ton of personality. Oh yeah. We, we've enjoyed, we've enjoyed all of our pigs there. They, they also will like to try and escape. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not that they actually truly want to escape. It's more just like they're trying to pick the lock on their, on their pen. And if they can get out, they will. And then they'll, they'll run around and make a nuisance of themselves until you and your neighbors catch them and put them back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll be good. I feel like it's, it's gained a lot of traction lately, like people wanting to you know, move out, especially with, with the dawn of the Internet and people being able to work remotely especially this past year, everybody pretty much being forced to work remotely, you know, people buying, you know, a little plot of land and then wanting to just become totally self-sufficient in all of their own, you know, meat needs and, and, you know, nutrient needs. I feel like that is gaining popularity from like this homesteading standpoint. And it's exciting to see. Yeah, it, it very much is. And the more we can decentralize our food system, the more we'll contribute to just more people making observations about the earth. You know, you'll, you'll notice things that before you had animals, you didn't have reason to notice, mm-hmm. you know, you'll, you'll make observations. It, it will make your surrounding landscape, surrounding your home, a richer environment just because you'll be interacting with it at a more profound level. Totally, totally agree. I think, you know, anybody would benefit from that. Um, talk to me a little bit about, about singing pastures, your business, the, the meat sticks, like I've perused on your website a little bit, but kind of shed some light onto what all you're offering there. Yeah, sure. So, um, like we said earlier, I'm, I'm the ninth generation. My children are the 10th generation and we've, we've tried farming a whole lot of different ways. And the way that we have really enjoyed, um, decentralizing the food system is just simply by removing ourselves from being a commodity pork producer. We don't necessarily want to be raising pigs and then selling it to the commodity market, especially when we know how special the animals are that we've raised. They've eaten so much grass. They're going to be so nutrient dense. We really want to make something out of them that reflects the amount of work that we put into them while they were alive, something that respects them and makes them, you know, as special as they nourish human beings as Mm -hmm. they were when they were alive. So uh, we thought about a lot of different things. We thought about, you know, frozen sausages and this and that and, We basically decided that so many people who are out on outdoor adventures or or people that are lifting or just being any sort of athlete uh, really enjoy, and I've got some here in my hand, uh, a product that we make called Rome Sticks. And the Rome Sticks are one-ounce shelf-stable bacon snack sticks. They taste super awesome. And that's what we've decided to do with our pigs. So it's a a bacon... So it's like a like a jerky stick, or like, like how's how's it look? It looks like a little smoked sausage. So it has a little twisted end. The whole thing is fully cooked, shelf stable. It's been hickory smoked. It basically, I like to call it a, a healthy version, a healthy keto version of a Slim Jim. Gotcha, gotcha. It's it's honestly disheartening how few options exist. And like when you go to a gas station and you're following a ketogenic diet or you just honestly care about your nutrition and what you're putting in your mouth, you know, none of the jerky products are worth a damn. They all have so much added sugars and, you know, preservatives. I mean, having options like that in simply like a shelf-stable, you know, jerky alternative is so, so important. Oh, yeah. Try to find one that doesn't have 
you know, if you're looking at gas station meat sticks, just try to find one that doesn't have, you know, four ingredients that you already know are toxic, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, but nonetheless, just having like one of these smoked sausages are so nice. We started making these uh, for our kids because when we were sending them off to, uh, to school for the first time, we were just seeing so much like high glycemic index snacks. Mm-hmm. And we were just noticing, you know, what that did to their immune system, what it did to their mood. We just wanted them to eat something that was a little bit lower glycemic index. And then after that, um, you know, before I was a farmer, I was a wilderness guide on river trips and uh, just stuff like this is so nice. So that's one of our primary focuses other than athletes is just people who are, you know, skiers or surfers or mountain bikers or athletes of any, of any kind. Um, And just how nice it is to have a little bacon snack stick in your pocket when you're out, out exerting yourself in the outdoors. And and you're doing all that, like you're smoking it, you're doing all that packaging and distribution in-house. No, um, it's very complicated to do all of that. The process it, itself is not that complicated, but there is um, just a lot of regulation and the machines that do it are extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. So what we did, we found um, a large commercial kitchen that's able to, to make the kind of snack stick uh, that we want. And we, we had to have a place that was familiar with doing it without all the super gnarly ingredients that we're trying to avoid. Gotcha, gotcha. Totally makes sense. Yeah, so that's how that's how we do it. Well, I'm definitely gonna place an order for a whole bunch because I mean I like I like that option. There's not very many places where you can get that, especially you know, in any of the common grocery stores or gas stations. Um and I, I mean now talking to you, I know how you're doing it behind the scenes, so I, I could I could eat it with a lot more confidence. Mm, yeah, yep, that's right. And if anyone would like to see more pictures of our farm or how we do all of this. Um, they can see more pictures at singingpastures.com. Perfect, perfect. I will certainly link out to that in the show notes as well. And you also mentioned that you have a, a slide deck that I can use in the show notes. Can you kind of shed some light into what that is? Absolutely. So there are several organizations out there in the world that kind of try to offer uh, some insight to people on why customers should be really excited about regenerative agriculture. Mm-hmm. And uh, the slideshow is this particular one is abbreviated and it's from an organization called Kiss the Ground. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, yeah, send that to me as well. And I'll put that in the show notes so that people can familiarize themselves with the process and why it's optimal, especially compared to the, the you know current standards out there. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll read to that myself as well. Um, and then one more time, the website is singingpastures.com. Yep, singingpastures.com. If you want to see some really great regenerative pig images, you can find them there. Perfect, perfect. Well, John, I can't thank you enough for the time. If I ever find myself up in Maine, I will certainly reach out and get a tour of the farm in, per- in person, man. I'd love to see it. Yeah, you'll always be welcome. And uh, thanks so much for being interested in regenerative agriculture. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care.